0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Emanuel Church Lurgan. At Emmanuel, our vision is to help rewrite the story of Craigavon, Ireland and the nations with the good news of the Kingdom of God. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. Wow, oh, wow, wow. What an evening. Good to be back. We're in um, Lagan Valley Vineyard this morning. Um, uh, and and on our way from the airport, Sarah and I were chatting, and she said, doesn't a famous whiskey come from there? I said, Lagan Valley, I've not heard of that one. She goes, no, it was. I said, ah, Lagavulin, oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) And um, so that's what happens when you bring a South African to Northern Ireland. (laughs) She makes links that aren't even there. (laughs) And it was so great. We... um, I don't know if you know it, Well, you probably wouldn't because you're all part of Emmanuel Church, but coming here is, there's a slight, if you guys weren't all so friggin' friendly, it would be really intimidating being here. Uh, I was chatting, we were chatting to um, uh, Chris and Craig uh, the the other day, and it's just like walking around and seeing how much has happened in the last two years. Sarah and I were here um, two years ago, and I mean, Sports Direct must be quivering in their boots. Because you're just slowly taking over. <laughs> and really, I, I, I should be expecting to see more of you churchgoers in cheap spandex. Such is the proximity to, to it in this place. So praise you, Lord. Bless Sports Direct and keep doing what you're doing in Emmanuel. It's just so, so wonderful to be here. Um, and we're at Tabar, obviously. Who, who, uh, show of hands, who is here for the Tabar? thing, conference gathering, amazing, 96 churches, unbelievable, unbelievable, so, so great. Um, This evening I want to chat to you about something that's um, dear to my heart, really just because I'm kind of learning it and learning how to navigate it, Um, and God is speaking to Sarah and I a bit about it, Um, and and that's basically the beauty of process, and the necessity of process. And the discernment of process. I was was chatting to um, Andy Masters earlier today. And um, I was reflecting to him about one of the seminars that I was in uh, at Tabar. Which Roger Ellis led about um, the seasons of life. And we were reflecting on how as a church often there's. Or as church leaders or whatever. There's so much pressure often to be in spring and summer. Spring and summer. Spring and summer. And whoa, whoa, whoa. We forgot about autumn and winter. And those are created purposes and seasons that that God has given us and there's a real freedom I think in acknowledging some of that because the fact is a lot of the time I don't know about you maybe it is just me but a lot of the time the stories we tell can be better than the lives we live if we're honest life can be pretty banal sometimes can be pretty brutal but it can also be beautiful and Sarah was telling me about someone who told her this new word that they coined. Life is brutal and beautiful. Well, it's kind of brutiful, right? <laughs> and that's the story that we're learning in Mannenberg. And that's the story that I think if you look at the life of Jesus, if you look at the early church, oh my goodness, the beauty. The beauty of healing from shadows. The beauty of um, chronically sick people being restored back into community and healed by the touch of Jesus the beauty of, oh man, like there's just so much beauty in the gospel. And the analogies and parables Jesus told about children and flowers and nature and all sorts. And yet the brutality of the fact that the early church were martyred and hung upside down for their faith. The brutality of the stoning of uh, uh, the apostles. The brutality of the, 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 there's that story where it says woman caught in adultery. That's not a story of the woman caught in adultery. That's a story of religious leaders caught with stones in their hand. And the brutiful nature of the gospel. I've got, I, I, it's a new word. I'm still learning to say it. Um, of the nature of the gospels in the early church and then the stories that each one of us are living. Because the fact of the matter is here as well. Jesus has changed our lives. Amen. He's changed our hearts. We look around Lurgan, We look around Manenberg. We look around wherever you care to look around. And there are no political and economic solutions to the problems that the world generates and faces. There just aren't. But the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And Jesus specializes in changing our hearts. Amen. I was going to say something else that I forgot. Life is brutal. (laughs) Just keep saying it. It's kind of funny. Um, I once heard um, Jackie Pullinger talk a bit. Uh, Jackie Pullinger, old uh, lady who lives in Hong Kong working and has worked for half a century with triad gangsters and heroin addicts. And I once heard her talking about the nature of the gospel. And she said this, she said, uh, the nature of the gospel is that it gives death to the giver and life to the receiver. If it brought death to Jesus to bring us life, then why would we think it would be any different for us in bringing life to those around us? And then if we look at Hebrews 5, this is just by way of intro. I'll land at some point. It says, um, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learnt obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Suffering is not an assault on our sonship. It's not an assault on the spirit of adoption that we have uh, come into and by which and by whom we cry, Abba Father. Sarah and I have chosen to live our life in a way that is not remotely radical and is not remotely uh, uh, hardcore or frontline. The way we live our life in proximity to the addicted and violent, criminal and uh, 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 hurting, is actually the life that we see Jesus living His. When He put on skin and came to heaven and swapped the comfort and security and riches of heaven to come to earth, He was making a move towards dysfunction, pain, trauma, abuse, betrayal, sickness, whatever else you can imagine. And so we live in Cape Town. Cape Town's a beautiful city. Who's been to Cape Town? Anyone? Handful of people? It's lovely. If you haven't been, go. It uh, is regularly on uh, top 10 places to visit in the world. It's heaven on earth, according to travel supplements, but for the majority of inhabitants in Cape Town, it's actually hell on earth. The fact of the matter is Cape Town is ninth in the world for homicides per 100,000 people. The fact of the matter is Cape Town is the most racially segregated city in South Africa, which itself is the most economically unequal country on earth. So when we talk about segregation, pain, racism, oh, and by the way, apartheid, which is an Afrikaans word meaning separateness, was at its heart, at its root, a theological project. Theology gone wrong leads to things like apartheid. You studying theology, praise God, there's never been a better time for theological literacy than now, with polarized rhetorics and pain and brittle theologies that cannot stand what's going on in the world. We need to learn how to think, not be told what to think. Amen? And we hear often, we hear amazing stories and we hear amazing testimonies, but We don't always allow room for the process, and in the process, as I hope we're going to see, there is a lot of beauty. Sarah and I have opened our home to young men between the ages of 18, I just spiked myself with my pen, 18 and 25, who are in gangs, on drugs, uh, in criminal behavior, uh, who the world has thrown out. This morning I was looking at the story of the demoniac in Mark chapter 5, the guy with the legion of demons. And society marginalized him and incarcerated him because they didn't know what to do with him. The world had no solution to the problem that he gave. And we can look at those villages and think, oh, that's a bit callous, isn't it? And yet the fact of the matter is the world has not moved on. The world doesn't have solutions to people like the man with the legion of demons today still. If someone is uh, manifesting the demonic or manifesting uh, mental health issues or or, self-harm or violence or whatever it might be, we tend to incarcerate and institutionalize. We tend to isolate and marginalize. Jesus comes and He gives us through the Spirit at work in Him. And the same Spirit, by the way, that raised Him from the dead is at work in you if you have been born again. And he gave us solutions to the problems that the world generates but cannot solve for itself. And so we, the church, are a company of people who actually can say to the world, we have solutions, and it doesn't come from social betterment theories or government coercion. It comes from incarnating in our life a bunch of people who are willing to pay the price of discipleship. And so the world can look at us and say, well, hang about, I know that I'm missing something. I know that I'm in the world and that I'm devoid of hope in Jesus because I look at Emmanuel Lurgan and I see a community of people where God is making a family out of strangers. Amen? The fact that at the top of your escalators you've got the links counseling, it, it shows me, it shows the world that this is a church that understands the brutiful nature of process and life. Praise God for that. And there's a movement that as Sarah and I over the last five weeks have been traveling around the UK and elsewhere, we have heard over and over Church leaders and people within the church training, counseling, uh, training for counseling, training courses, uh, setting up counseling ministries with huge vision for the counseling and the inner healing ministry that needs to accompany the move of the power of the Spirit of God. Because the inner healing movement will continue and will perpetuate that touch of God. You need the follow through after the breakthrough. And so. This is some of the things that we're learning in in, in Mannenberg. We're part of Tree of Life. Sarah and I are part of um, leading a a, a church called Tree of Life. Tree of Life is a 24-7 prayer boiler room community. And we run Crew 62, which is our home. We've opened it up and say, come and live with us if you're uh, desperate to leave gangs and drugs behind. And we see some young men get free. And we rejoice when they do. And we see many more, if we're totally honest, not get free. And we lament and we contend for their freedom. We also have a, a home called Basila that I spoke about last time I was here, a home for addicted uh, uh, or abused teenage girls. Basila is Arabic for brave and free. We have a preschool called Skatis, which is uh, for, uh, uh, for children, preschool age kids coming out of homes where addiction and abuse is rife. We believe that these are some of the things that God is ans- asking us to do as we pray, Lord, how do we seek the peace of Mannenberg? Is it getting any easier? Nope, we've been there 10 years, and Sarah and I have given up praying a prayer that over the last few years, I can guarantee 100% does not work. And that prayer is, as we limp often, or have done to the end of the year, and and actually last year was the first time in a long time that we didn't. We we prayed this prayer, we said, Oh Lord, won't you make next year a little bit easier? Amen, thank you. And we've begun to realize that we're 100% effective in praying that prayer and seeing it unanswered. God does, does not seem to be answering that prayer. Instead, what we're beginning to learn is to pray a different prayer, which is proving much more successful, thank God. And that is, Lord, we understand that the chaos around us is not going to subside. We understand that we can't just pray a prayer from the comfort of our house for addiction and gangsterism to be broken and that's that. We understand that in living life in proximity with people who, even in revival and even in moves of the Spirit, are making disastrous choices a lot of the time. We understand that the prayer that we want to pray, Father, is that you would give us the capacity... The wherewithal, the surrender, the yieldedness, the conformity to the person of Jesus Christ. So that when, not if, the chaos rages around us, we can curl up in the middle of the storm and sleep. Because you've only got authority over the storm in which you can sleep. Amen? And so we're beginning to see that happening. We're beginning to outgrow some of the issues. The fact of the matter is, in the last six months, Sarah and I have received more death threats than we have in the last ten years combined. And here's the thing, though. You can't threaten us with heaven. <laughs> that went down well. It sounds almost flippant, doesn't it? But if we really understand the secret of the message of Galatians two twenty, which says it's no longer I who live anyway, but Christ who lives with me. I've been crucified years ago. You cannot threaten me with heaven. My goodness, it would be sad, but my goodness, you will see the legacy and you'll see the truth of the fact that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Just you try it. Give it a go. Because if you do, and if you do succeed, to live is Christ and to die is? And the legacy of what Jesus will do through our death will be unbelievably redemptive, and there's nothing you'll be able to do to stop it. So we are invincible. This is not just the power of wishful thinking. This is not some sort of jumped up psycho pop self-help Christianese. This is the truth of the gospel. We sang, death, where is your sting? Do we believe it? You cannot threaten me with heaven. I want to show you a short film. It's about two minutes long. And it just gives um, you an idea of some of the faces and places of Mannenberg. It just, it just helps set the scene of some of what I want to talk to uh, tonight. So could we show that two-minute movie? Our policy is one which is called by an Afrikaans word apartheid. What will it take to change the story? A vision from the heart of God, growing community and restoring worth in forgotten places. We all have a journey marked out ahead. There'll be both victories and tragedies. Where will yours lead and what trials will you face along the way? The voice of God deep within is beckoning us into adventures as yet unknown. whole-hearted lives, so costly but relentlessly hopeful. Could another world be calling a compelling new reality where walls are torn down and friendships built? Where myths are exposed and unheard voices listened to? The old order of things made new. What of the cost, the accusation, the despair, the choruses of it can't be done. We can choose what to believe, to rise up above the pointing fingers of accusation and the shrugs of indifference. The stories we live in are the stories we live out. What if yours is a story that the world is crying out to hear? Because ultimately, There is no neutral ground. We go looking for brokenness, we go looking for those that the world rejects, we don't go looking for a fight for the sake of it, in some weirdly sort of uh, masochistic, self-flagellating kind of got to suffer on purpose, and we get wonky when we do that. It's also worth saying we've seen lives transformed, I think of a young man called Marawan, who came out of Unga, which is street heroin, which is heroin uh, laced with rat poison. So you start taking heroin and um, the rat poison gives you stomach ulcers. But the only thing to take away the pain of the stomach ulcers is to keep using more heroin. Uh, And he came to our house and he got free. He got free from uh, heroin through the gift of worship uh, and through the power of worship. He literally got uh, delivered of withdrawal pains and he got um, delivered from uh, every cold turkey manifestation through the power and baptism of the Holy Spirit in an instant. And we saw him grow and he grew for 15 months and did unbelievably well and became a community activist and washed his mother's feet and asked for forgiveness for everything he had done before he died. And then in a 60-day walk from Johannesburg to Cape Town, 1,500 kilometers, 38 kilometers over each day he was going to do with a friend. On the second day of it, he got knocked by a car and died on the spot. We have seen the beauty and the brutality of life and we continue to in proximity to those whose lives are lived in Manenberg. I want us to have a little look at the um, life of Joseph. Joseph was uh, a, a teenager with a, a prophetic word and a, dream, and a dream interpretation anointing that he was going to rule and reign, right? And he was a teenager when he got these dreams, and he went to his brothers and he said, hey guys, I've got these great dreams, you'll love these. And... Um, uh, Predictably, his brothers didn't enjoy the fact that his dreams were that he was going to rule and reign over them and they were to bow down to him. And they ended up leaving him for dead in the bottom of a pit. And then he, uh, he was a, uh, And if you're in a pit, by the way, and a lot of us are at some point in our life, and this is the freedom that comes from embracing the seasons of life and comes from embracing surrender and solitude rather than, quick, got a plant, keep, keep, keep going. A pit, I once heard someone said, really just stands for PIT, Profit in Training. And the deeper the pit, the deeper the well that God can redeem that pit into. And a deeper well has a higher capacity for more water, more refreshing, more sustenance that doesn't only affect you but others around you. If you're in a pit, I promise you the goodness of God will get you out of that pit at some point and will redeem it and you will see the process of that pit will be the thing that was the very thing that you needed to get you into the promise. The process precedes the promise. And the process is what you need to become conformed to the likeness and character and congruence and anointing of Jesus Christ so that when you get to that point of prophetic destiny, you have everything that you need to be able to hold it and not destroy it in an instant because God has been working on you in the process. The longer the process, the higher higher God's complement is to you because he's teaching you more and more and more in that. And so Joseph was left as a, uh, sold, uh, 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 left for dead, and then he was sold as a slave. He ended up at a man Potiphar's house, and Potiphar, um, he did all the chores and all the rest of it. He was at the bottom of the social ladder, having been, left, having been given a, a, a prophecies of ruling to reign. He was then at the bottom of a pit, then sold into slavery. But the favor of God on his life was that he rose to the top, and he was put in charge of all of Potiphar's household administrative stuff. And so he's at another peak. Sure, it's not where he was because he's a slave, but he's at a peak. Favor's a bit like a beach ball. You try and push it down and it pops back up out of the water. But what happens? Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. But here's the thing. Joseph was congruent. He was a congruent believer. I once asked two battle axe old ladies her intercessors who live in Franschuk about 90 minutes out of Cape Town. The day I moved into Mannenberg nine years ago and I said to them, what's the one lesson you would tell me? And they said, congruency. And I thought, oh, how inspiring. What does that mean? <laughs> and they said, are you the same person in private as you are in public? Because if you're not, Because if you are your ministry and you are not the same in private as you are in public, then you're building on a shaky foundation. And the thing about Joseph is that we find out when Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, he is the same in private as he was in public. He had a congruency of faith. And so he ran off. But then what happens? He gets persecuted for his congruency and integrity and he ends up now, not just a slave, but an imprisoned slave accused of rape. I mean, you can't get much lower than that. And so that he's, he, he has gone completely the opposite way of these prophetic words over his life. Left for dead, sold as a slave, sure a bit of favor, but now he's in jail, accused of rape. What on earth is going on? Lord, I don't know if I believe in you. Damn it, I'm so bitter. I'm just, I, I'm, I give up. Not a bit of it. He stewarded and took responsibility for his inner life with God. So that when two people came up to him saying, we've got these dreams, he was able to accurately give one of them a word of doom and one of them a word of destiny, both of which came to pass. But two years later, they'd forgotten about him, the guy who had uh, been set free and who had the word of destiny. It was only two years after that, again, where Joseph could have felt completely forgotten, overlooked and all the rest of it, that Pharaoh had a dream. And this guy, remembered. there's that guy Joseph rotting in jail. I wonder if he's kept his heart pure and hasn't just grown bitter and lost his faith. They go and get him and he interprets these dreams from Pharaoh. And he's elevated into apostolic influence. Second in the nation, Pharaoh's right-hand man. He saves the nation not only from disaster, but the rest of the nations around them he saves from famine and disaster. Such was his influence and such was his strategic gifting. And not only that, but at the end it comes full circle. And the personal relationships within his family between he and his brothers were reconciled. And because what he learnt and what we need to learn in the process is that what we learn in adversity will become our life message. What we learn in the crucible of adversity is the very thing that God will beautifully redeem and will allow, if you let him, to become Your life message. There was a man called um, Sadhu Sundar Singh. Catchy name, hey? He was an Indian missionary. He was born a Sikh but converted to Christianity the night he was about to commit suicide. This was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And so this suicidal Sikh was appeared to by Jesus, And he converted and he got born again. And he ended up getting the nickname, The Apostle with the Bleeding Feet. Such was his zeal for his newfound faith and intimacy with Jesus that he trekked across India and Tibet sharing the gospel with those that no one else either bothered or dared to share it with. And he had an analogy that he asked his believers and he said to them, and this is a man well acquainted with suffering, despair, suicide. And he picked up a stone from the stream and he said to his followers, Is this pebble wet? Easy question. Of course it is. And he takes the pebble and he hits it hard against another rock and it splits in two. And he shows his followers, who were quite right in saying the pebble was wet, the inside of the pebble, bone dry. And he likened each of these pebbles to the, uh, the, the potential of what we can be like in the stream of God, going to church, washed day by day by the presence of the Spirit, the beautiful worship, the encouraging teaching, the fellowship, the community of believers, praying in tongues, whatever it might be. And yet actually when you hit that, by all intents and purposes, wet stone against a rock, what happens? Inside it can be bone dry. And so what I want to say, and I say this with a degree of caution because I know we can go wonky when we look like we're championing suffering or whatever. And I'm not saying that. It doesn't make you more spiritual. And nor do I in any way belittle some of the pain that is in our hearts. And here's the thing. If we knew just the half of the amount of pain and anxiety that each one of us was holding and kind of put it here in the center, we wouldn't be able to bear it. God knows each one of our hearts, He knows each one of our hang-ups and sadnesses, each one of our unresolved hurts, and He sees that. But it's the kindness of Jesus to take this pebble, if the goal is getting as wet as we can in the river of God, getting as drenched with the person and presence of the Spirit of Jesus as possible, then the uh, the kindest thing He can do is to take us and to hit us against the rock. And then we get doubly, doubly drenched and to take those pieces and to hit them until we're actually lots and lots of little pieces, ground up, pebble. And then he can throw us back in the river and we're saturated with the presence of God in a way that we wouldn't be before, before we were broken. Bear in mind the Holy Spirit's called the comforter. But if we're too busy receiving the comforts of this world, we have no need for a comforter. It's only when we walk out of the counterfeit comforts of the world into discomfort that we need to cry, Holy Spirit, I need you. So actually, if you're in discomfort, the Holy Spirit's a comforter. If you're in comfort, He's actually a disruptor. Because it's the kindness of God to take us out of the state familiarity of the, the systems and uh, 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 ways of the world. And so... I want us to have a little look at a couple of verses from uh, a, a chapter in Isaiah which are going to make you think I've gone completely wacko. Um, we will find a message from them, I promise. Okay. Isaiah 28, verse 27 to 28. Caraway is not threshed with a sledge. Did you know that? Nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. Caraway is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a stick. Grain must be ground to make bread. So one does not go on threshing it forever. Duh. Though he drives the wheels of his threshing cart over it, his horses do not grind it. Brilliant. He's completely lost it. What on earth does that mean? Well, what is it telling us about? This is telling us about the process of crushing and milling spices and grains. And the process of milling and crushing spices and grains is such that you need to physically crush and break and cause pain to that little grain in order to make that grain into flour. Crushing and milling releases what? Flavor, aroma, potential. Processes longer than we would like, but the longer the process is, the finer the flour. Each process is a little different. If Alan's a cardamom pod and Phil's a cinnamon stick, (laughs) imagine that. (laughs) But you have different processes, this passage tells us, for getting the best out of different spices. Each one of us is on our own individual process, the length and nature of which will differ. If I look at, if caraway looks, no, what were you, cardamom? If cardamom looks at cinnamon and says, well, I want, to be, I want my process to be like that, and cinnamon looks at cardamom and says the same, then we've missed the point. The thing about comparison is it'll steal your joy one way or the other because it'll either make you proud or completely anxious. Because we compare our best bits with other people's worst bits, or our worst bits with other people's best bits. But here's the thing. Each of our processes will always involve a breaking or a crushing of sorts. And I was going to say, I'm sorry to say it, but I'm not, because that is where the kindness of God is held. If we know that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, and if we're told to share in the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus, then there's a secret for us here that Romans 5.8 tells us. Is it 5.8 or 5.3? I can't remember. But it says... We can rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because that produces character and perseverance. And character and perseverance, when put together, equal hope. And so buried in the seeds of suffering are actually the character and the conformity of the person of Jesus, are actually the perseverance to run the race so that we finish well, and so that we become a people of hope. And that's not cheap optimism, people. Hope is forged in the crucible of suffering. That's what the Bible tells us. Jesus was crushed so that we could be free. We're told to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And as we do, we become people of hope. He was the most light-hearted, hopeful person I think we would have ever met if we met him face to face. The Holy Spirit, I think someone once compared to a cross between Mother Teresa and Tigger. <laughs> We've got to understand the nature of the goodness of God. And we've got to understand that the thing that makes beautiful people is process. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said this, The most beautiful people she's known are those who have known defeat, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These people have an appreciation and understanding of life that fills them with compassion and deep loving concern. And then she says this, Beautiful people do not just happen. We, we live with addicts, Sarah and I. Or they live with us, or both. And God teaches me some of the most amazing lessons through living with addicts and seeing that it really is true that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled or that it's blessed to be poor in spirit. Almost like the poverty of spirit creates a vacuum in which the air of Jesus just fills and is like irresistible to. But what I've learned is that actually we're all in rehab. If you're following Jesus... Whether you were on drugs or uh, whatever it might be, we can come up with a whole list of substances that are socially unacceptable that we could be addicted to. And the fact of the matter is, vast swathes of the church are fairly addicted to things that are a bit more socially acceptable. We just don't call it addiction. Amen? (laughs) Ish. (laughs) Welcome to rehab. We are being restored, renewed, day by day. The Holy Spirit at work in us. And we can learn, and we are learning... From these uh, uh, previously addicted young men, what it means to rely on the touch and the renewing of covenant with Father God. Um, If we look at Exodus 19, 3 to 8, God tells the Israelites, and he gives them a simple message. Essentially, his message and God's message is pretty much the same thing obey me and keep my covenant. The people responded. It was like a sort of the, the end of the Tabar conference. We've got the flags waving. We've got the dancers going. We've got Al Emerson in his Tabar t shirt flying the flag and waving. And, and everyone's like, yes, we will do everything that the Lord has said. That's straightforward. We're up for it. The Spirit's willing. A few chapters go by, and Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. But he goes a little bit too long. For the shaky followers, the Israelites, uh, they start getting anxious. They start partnering with fear. We all make bad decisions when we partner with fear. We know that, right? And what do they do? They relapse. Now, it looks a little different for them. They basically did a whip round, got all the gold earrings, melted them down, and made a golden calf. We might think, okay, we're safe from doing that. Probably wouldn't do that today. But then God tells Moses about what the people are doing down the foot of the mountain. Moses comes down with the tablets that God has given him that he's written on uh, himself. We're told that the tablets are the work of the Lord. The writing was the writing of God engraved. And no sooner had God done the work of giving his people guidance and ways to live than his people relapsed. Relapse always goes against the process that God is building in you. And when I talk about relapse, I'm talking about coping mechanisms, uh, unhealthy habits. Of course, I'm talking of addictions. I'm talking about empowering lies that we believe about ourselves that rise up again. Israel, Israel relapsed into their sin of choice, which was idolatry, and God's response was what? We see it in Exodus 34 verse 1. You can almost hear the loving sigh of the Father. See if I can get there quick enough to not feel awkward. No. (laughs) Exodus 34 verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, You can hear the sigh. (sighs) Okay. Chisel out two stone tablets, like the first ones, and I'll write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. The Israelites relapsed back into idolatry Moses relapsed back into his anger problem, broke the tablets. And what was Father God's response? The renewal of covenant with his flawed, relapsing people. So was the golden calf part of God's plan for Israel? No, of course not. Of course it wasn't. And we can look at a whole bunch of things in our life that are negative and they are going against what God's building in our life. Was it part of his plan? Of course not. But here's the thing. God doesn't have a plan for your life. Phil told us this. God doesn't give you a map with a plan. He gives you a purpose with a compass. Right? And that's so much more creative, actually. He's not a micromanager. He gives you a compass rather than a map and loves watching you navigate the journey. He loves it. And so therefore, it's less about what you achieve in life and the person you're becoming and the level of dependency on his voice that you uh, uh, derive and develop as you follow him. We're 10 years into the process in Mannenberg and it still feels like we're kind of on step one. We're learning what to do when people threaten your life. And learning neat phrases like, you can't threaten me with heaven, but that hopefully have a bit of gravitas in the moment and you don't actually capitulate and just say fine. (laughs) But if we go back to Joseph's process, we can learn quite a lot. Because the other thing is that Joseph's process, those five or six chapters in the book of Genesis, that was a 17 year process, by the way. The higher the cost of the call, I've got three points and then we're finished. And then we're going to minister and we're going to do all sorts. The higher the cost of the call, the clearer the revelation. When God asked me, will you move into Mannenberg?" I thought, okay, fine. But you need to be really clear about it. In the space of three and a half weeks, he provided 208,200 Rand for me to buy a house. The house was 200,000 Rand. The attorney's fees were 8,000 Rand. So he had over provided by 200 Rand, which is the equivalent of 20 pounds fluctuating exchange rates and bank charges, and he got it down to the last 20 pounds. That's not bad. I thought, okay, I'll overlook the last 20 (laughs) pounds. Because it it was over, you understand. If it was under, I'd be like, Lord, what are you doing? And I moved in with this young man called Dwayne who had assured me that he was off heroin, and then it rapidly emerged that he wasn't when everything went missing from the house. Uh, But we moved in and turned on the light switch, and uh, nothing happened because all the copper wiring had been stripped by crystal meth addicts who had broken in whilst the house was standing empty. About half an hour later, my friend Jono walks in and goes, oh, yeah, shame about that. Um, Tell you what, give me 200 rand and I'll wire it for you. 208,200 rand, over three and a half weeks that came in. It was an eight-month process to get the house. Walked in, no electricity, and that last 200 rand was to wire the house and give it light. God had been there before, it was a setup. And the problem was I had to move in now. <laughs> the harder, And I should have known that it was going to be a damn hard call because that was such a clear sign of his goodness. And there's a whole story of what a train smash of a time that was and what a vertical learning curve it was. But I wouldn't swap it for the world. I was chatting to a man today who uh, I was then told later on has been through it. And he was just standing there in front of me just saying, I would never choose to go back, but my goodness, the things that God taught me through that process, I would never have learned another way. Secondly, the greater our destiny, the longer the journey. I alluded to this before. We used to say we're in a microwave culture, you know, like, oh, we just want to microwave everything and make it quick. I wonder if we are. I wonder if we're now in a kind of slow cooking culture, you know, with the sort of like 24 hour beef brisket and burnt ends and that sort of Texan barbecue coming to to the Europe and all the rest of it. So we begin to understand that the length of the journey really does make something a lot more tasty than a kind of floppy chicken breast that we've nuked. (laughs) The length of the journey is God's highest compliment to you because it contains all you need to be the person he wants you to be at that point. In the journey is all you need. And thirdly, and this really has been a game changer for Sarah and I, We need to learn to redefine success. Because God does not measure in numbers. I don't think God counts Christians. To use Dallas Willard's phrase, He doesn't count us, He weighs us. He measures in growth and character, not in metrics and numerals. And that's the conformity of Jesus. Someone once asked Sarah, and I tell this story wherever I go just because it's such a phenomenal response. Someone once asked Sarah and I. They said, "Well, so what's your success rate? What's your success rate in Crew 62?" I started getting clammy hands and thinking, oh no, you know all my sort of childhood issues with success and perfectionism coming up. And Sarah just eyeballs this person, who is also a, a, a generous funder and just wanted to know what was going on. And she just says, "100 percent." I thought, "Oh my goodness, how, how on earth are we going to..." fudge the numbers and show this to be 100% because as I say the fact of the matter is I just want to be real, more guys have not got free than have got free I was chatting to those same intercessors who said the word congruence and they have been pretty much 40-50 years in ministry ministering in South Africa and they said to a friend, they could probably count On one hand, the people whose lives were irrevocably and irreversibly changed and who are now self sustaining and incredibly fired up for Jesus in 50 years of ministry. I'm not saying that to say, right, cool, like, you know, but like, don't set your sights high. What I am saying is that we need to measure success differently. And Sarah was able to say 100% with absolute integrity and truth because she then said this. Oh, God never asked us to open a rehab and get people off drugs. He asked us to move into a community that we were told not to, based on our political, but really mainly theological convictions, and welcome those who are the marginalized of the marginalized to come and live with us in our house. And as we did that, to welcome them into family, Share the gospel of Jesus Christ and his love and death and resurrection with them. And give them every opportunity they need to succeed in life if they choose to. She said, oh, we've been 100% successful. We have done that for each individual. And when we redefine success to the faithfulness to what God's asked us to do, we will begin to realize that it really isn't what we achieve in life. And it's all about the person we're becoming as we follow Jesus in step with his spirit. I heard someone just sigh there. It's like, oh, thank God, right? His yoke is easy and his burden is light. So as we move into a time of ministry, I wonder what God's been speaking to you about. Maybe you're at the beginning of your process. Maybe you think, oh, this is, you know, you haven't, you haven't necessarily had that, that crushing or that milling. Great, that's fine. And this isn't some word of doom. This is God, God saying, I've got such great plans for you that involve growing like me. But maybe you feel like you might have been around the block a couple of times. You're like, oh, my goodness. I, yeah, I mean, you cannot mill or crush me anymore, frankly. And I've lost sight of the nature of the goodness of God. Or maybe you're somewhere in between. I don't know, but as the band comes up and as Al or Dave or whoever else comes and takes over from me, because I don't know how you do this and I'd uh, submit to you guys and how you do it, let's stand and ask the Holy Spirit to come. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. For more information about our church and all that we do, please visit our website at emmanuel-church.co.uk